0: Barely Research Facts is a facts-based show, Barely, brought to you by Art Nadas, an arts, events, and content company based in India. The show is a trip down dissection lane of words. Each episode, the host, Shar, and me, Ragini, choose one word and deep dive into it. Every interesting fact we can find, we research, somewhat casually, and bring to you, pairing it with some good humor and casual chat between two friends. Welcome to the episode. Our word this episode is an Independence Day special... We're going with revolution. So a quick summary about what to expect this episode. 15th August is the Indian Independence Day, which got us thinking, why isn't the Indian independence movement referred to as a revolution? There's a little bit about the famous white revolution in in India, though, and a very famous ad mascot associated with it. Also, it turns out Pluto's kind of done with our solar system and does not want to sit with the other planets anymore. And while we're in outer space, there's a little bit about the revolutionary Kepler telescope and how it made Star Wars fans gurgle with childish excitement. Then we bring you crashing down to Earth to talk about something revolutionary to science. Thomas Kuhn. If you know, you know. And finally, an album record to keep the mood going even after the episode is done. So this is clearly a packed episode right now. I'm going to jump in with our first fact, which is more uh, sort of me figuring out stuff than an actual fact, really. Um, But... I was genuinely curious to find, to, like, you know, because this is an Indian, like an Independence Day special episode and it is all, that's because we are, you know, on the verge of the Indian Independence Day. Uh, why is the Indian independence movement not a revolution? Now, for that, I'm going to just quickly give a definite, what the definition of a revolution mm-hmm. is. Uh, a revolution is basically uh, either a forcible overthrow of a government or a social order in favor of a new system, or it could be a dramatic, wide reaching change in conditions, attitudes, or operations. And both of these sort of suggest a suddenness to a revolution, right? It feels yeah. like something may have been brewing for a period of time and then sort of culminates into this massive thing. So now, given the. So now, what I did know is that there was a revolutionary faction within the Indian independence struggle that whose methods were very drastically different to that of Gandhi's methods, non violent resistance. Yet, while their actions are a portion of history in our independence, the entire period is largely known as a movement. And my only answer to this after my research was that given the long-term nature of the independence struggle in India, it's more a gradual movement with many ideologies and methodologies that have sort of culminated in its eventual success than a sudden dramatic event, which is the prerequisite for a revolution. So therefore, the Indian independence struggle is a movement and not a revolution.
1: I think that's Positive, isn't it? Like it's a slow burn. Yeah. Like people knew what they wanted before it actually happened.
0: Yeah. Or oh, we, you know, just Indians taking their time. with Philly. Oh, ho, ho.
1: on Independence Day, arguing, Wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, but, 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 having said that, India has had its fair share of revolutions and very colorful revolutions. Mm. The most famous of which is the white revolution which was also known as operation mm-hmm. flood it was an initiative by the indian government to exponentially increase the production of milk in the country the white revolution was launched shortly after the success of the green revolution <laughs> which resulted in an immense increase in food and grain production in the country so these are the two most famous but in my research i kind of realized that there were a bunch of,
1: of revolutions
0: associated with Ooh. colors uh, yeah okay. so why do okay do something throw a color at me and i'll tell you if it was a revolution
1: oh, okay interesting purple Okay, uh, you suck. <laughs> wow, I don't like this <laughs> Can game. Can my game then? This game is a bit mean. <laughs> okay, hold
0: on. Blue. Uh, oh, yes. Okay, yes. There was a blue revolution
1: related to fish. Okay, are we going to get more, or is it just related to fish? <laughs> like, we wanted to make the fishing industry bigger, or okay, so there was the blue revolution.
0: Uh, no, but much like you know, the white revolution was about the production of milk, and the green revolution was about the production of food and grain. The blue revolution was about the production and the sort of you know the production of the fishing industry.
1: Okay, so they okay, that's that's yeah. cool. Yeah, <coughs> sorry, excuse oh, it's me. Not You've been expecting like detail out of Yeah, this. I want like a proper BRF <laughs> um, explanation okay. of the Blue Revolution now. Hey, hold on, I'm going to think of another color. Um, say gold? Ooh, no, there's nothing for gold. That I Actually, know. we don't need a gold revolution. Indians know and love and buy and have enough gold.
0: <laughs> yeah. There is, however, a silver revolution that was related to the
1: production of eggs. Oh, I almost went silver. Silver with eggs? Oh, okay, hold on. Last one. Pink.
0: Uh, oh, there is a pink revolution. No. Uh related to the production of onions and prawns. I uh, think these might have been separate revolutions. <laughs> but they
1: were both called the pink revolution. This is like a prawn curry nah. type thing. <laughs> like what's happening? Why were they paired so oddly? <laughs> Just anything I, I pink. You really don't know why.
0: See, I got this information of a little post that was basically for a 10th grade civil <laughs> studies exam. So it was very to the point and was just, these are the revolutions, this is what they're related to, learn them.
1: So I don't have much details. Uh, it takes me back to my school days. Just learn it. Don't worry about where it came from. <laughs> just, yes, yes, This is it. This is the facts.
0: Apparently my current podcasting days are exactly the same. <laughs> okay, but... Uh, one of the things that sort of came to my mind while I was going through these very colorful revolutions, uh, and I kind of got stuck with the white revolution all over again, but it was about uh, you know, so it it it's about a very very famous ad mascot in India. It's the Amul girl, yeah, the Amul ad girl, right? So. Uh, Arguably, possibly the most famous ad mascot in India, maybe barring the Air India Maharaja, Mm. uh, which is another, uh, which is a whole other thing. Uh, But for those of you who may not know this, Amul is one of the largest dairy brands in India. It was founded in 1946 by Dr. Kurian Varghese, who is also known as the National Milkman of India. Mm. And if that doesn't give you an idea of his role in the White Revolution.
1: um, He milked the cows, clearly. (laughs) He milked them.
0: Okay. (laughs) <laughs> but since <laughs> as long as i can remember uh the amul ads have sort of had this had had this iconic amul girl featured across billboards and newspaper ads all over the country um uh, the cute thing about these ads is that they're always topical they're always witty uh and they always have an unmistakable like sort of indian desiness to their funny uh, there's a bit of a Hinglish thing going on there, and we will we put up a few in the blog post for you to take a look at. They're, they're quite enjoyable, but I guess it's quite obvious where I'm going with this. I'm going to the core, the history of the Amul girl.
1: No uh, little blue head princess. The story I do like her. She just reminds me of my childhood. I do really like her. She's kind of cute, right? Yeah. Um, her eyes are a bit manic. <laughs> but yeah. no, but no, I no think no. That's a recent thing. Yeah, she's very cute. She's mm. very cute. Very cute.
0: Okay so the story begins in 1966 when Dr. Varghese was looking for an ad campaign for Amul butter mm-hmm. uh, and he gave the job to Dakuna Communications in Mumbai which was by, at the time led by Sylvester Dakuna uh and now back in the day advertising on television and magazines was extremely expensive in India so they sort of uh, you know Dakuna's De decided to go the billboard route and they would that would then feature the mascot. The Amul girl was sketched by art director Eustace Fernandez. And, you know, so that was where the blue hair, she's blue haired, she wears a red polka dot dress. Uh, and the first ad described Amul butter as utterly butterly delicious, mm. which is a phrase that is still associated with the product. And it was coined by Sylvester's wife, Nisha Dakunya. And it sort of sets the tone for this very punny, you know, aesthetic that the brand would continue to have over the years. Yeah first ad showed the Amul girl sort of praying very sincerely at her bedside, <laughs> uh, asking the Lord for, in her prayers, to give us this day our daily bread and then it goes dot a dot, dot with Amul butter. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> so cute. Uh, yeah. The first ad was a hit. The Amul girl went on to star in like five decades of like billboards and she's still going strong. In over five decades actually, what, what am I saying? At some point, the legacy of the brand and the product itself, like Mascot was continuing to grow but the agency was kind of running out of things to say about the product. Mm. So, this was when they started referencing current events. Now, this is kind of really cool because it feels like Amul was doing years ago what brands have begun to do on Twitter now. Mm. You know, where like brands pick up a topical thing and they make like a thing out of it and they kind of advertise through that. Amul started doing this years ago with billboards. Mm-hmm. The ads make use of liberal puns in English and Hindi. The team currently includes copywriter Manis Javeri, who is to be credited with the multilingual punning because he speaks both English and Hindi and... Uh, so the illustrator is Jayant Rane, and Sylvester son Rahul has now taken over the agency. So these, these, this is the team. And the Amul girl still appears in most of the ads the ads are still hand-painted by Jayantrane, even though, like, he doesn't really need to. Yeah. Uh, he pencil sketches the first few options and he sketches out the final print. Now, in the past, billboards had, you know, they were all hand-painted and we've kind of seen them in Bollywood films of yesteryear with this, like, painter hanging on to the scaffolding and, like, painting the, the billboard. Yeah. Uh, so, obviously, they don't need to, like, hand-paint them anymore, but it's cute that they still do and it's kind of, like, nice. Uh, now, of course, like, once he does hand paint them the illustrations for the outdoors are produced on like regular vinyl sheets which is typical for billboards now the ads are often political but they sort of always retain their light hearted tone the Amul girl will sometimes feature as herself sometimes she takes on the role of a celebrity or someone who they feature in the ad and there is chance that it may at some point lose its charm and relevance but so far it does feel like even as the Amul girl is approaching her 60th birthday oh. in a few years in about 4 years from now she still seems to be holding on just fine uh We will put some of the more global ads that we love in our blog post. Uh, If you're familiar with the work, if you're not, I guarantee you that this is totally worth the jaunt over to just take a look, and it's definitely to like bring a smile to anyone's face. So that is the story of the Amul girl and uh, her journey over the last fifty four years. Love
1: it, love it, love that she's sixty. Bless her. Yeah, she, yeah she, maybe she needs to hand over the reins. But she, is, yeah,
0: yeah, she really looks good for her age, I have to She say. does. She doesn't look a day older than 10.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a bit worrying, but yeah, she does. <laughs> okay, now from, from something really fun and memorable from our childhood to yeah. something that you probably, I didn't know about. I'm not going to make assumptions about you. But I wanted to talk a little bit about science writer Thomas Kuhn. Now, have you heard of him? No. Okay, neither had I. So, okay, I want to preface this whole fact by saying that I'm barely scratching the surface of what's covered by Thomas Kuhn um, and the book he wrote. And I'm not here to explain things to you because I do not find that I am capable of that. (laughs) I'm merely going to scratch the surface and then throw the book at you and go and be like, go read it, please. So, while I was reading about this, I had to go take a nap, read a bit more, take another nap, okay. and then sort of maybe got it. I'd recommend you take this as less of a fact and more of a recommendation, essentially. That is quite a sentence Yeah, that's the introduction. I'm really looking forward now, to Now, prepare to be confused. So, Thomas Kuhn, he wrote this little old book called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. And this was in okay. 1962. He did it for this... Um, monograph called the International Encyclopedia of Unified Science, which is super ironic because Kuhn's masterpiece and what he's known best for apparently did not really unify science at all. It broke it open, making many its enemy and starting so very many arguments. (laughs) Now, OK, so many, if not most people like the both of us have never heard of Thomas Kuhn or of this book, but their thinking has almost certainly been influenced by his ideas. So the litmus test is whether you've ever heard or used the term paradigm shift. Have you? Ooh, yes. So Thomas Kuhn is attributed primarily with bringing this word and this phrase that the word paradigm and the phrase paradigm shift into the common man's parlance. Um and like he's like the scientific Shakespeare. Yeah, a little bit like an Aristotle Shakespeare yeah. and and, um, you know, and himself all rolled in Thomas one. Kuhn. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Poor I forgot about him. Paradigm as used by Kuhn was used to describe the intellectual order that was overthrown during periods of revolution. Now, let that sit with you. For Mm -hmm. two seconds. Mm -hmm. Now, the initial idea and his mini book was intended to apply only to the natural sciences. uh, But that didn't matter. It's like me wearing like artificially torn jeans Uh, to look cool. It's just not for you. Just stop doing it. (laughs) But it was. Yeah. I was was like, where is that analogy going? um, But yeah, so it was taken and it was sort of expanded to the entire scientific community. And it was so novel, so persuasive. And when it was republished as a book in 1970, so perfect for the rebellious spirit of the times that it quickly became adopted as a kind of general theory of everything. So if you I, my imagination, all I see is a hippie in a mystery, uh, like a, a shaggy Scooby-Doo type van uh, reading this book mm-hmm. and like tracking over the uh, over the continental US. Um, that's what comes to my head. And over the last 30 years, apparently, it's sold a million copies, which, if you think about it, it's a science book. Like, it's it's really dry. But a million hmm. copies is is huge for, like, yeah. a work of, like, serious scholarship. So the real measure of Kuhn's importance lies not in the Attractiveness of one of his ideas from his book, but that he single handedly changed the way we think about mankind's most organized attempt to understand the world. So, if you want to define science in that way, that's one way of defining it, right? Um, now, here's the second attempt at trying to make you guys understand what this is. So he proposed that scientists, so this is the order of things that happen, and this is cyclical in nature. Scientists accept the dominant paradigm, if you remember what paradigm is, to coon, until anomalies are thrown up. Then scientists begin to question the basis of the paradigm itself. New theories emerge, which challenge the dominant paradigm. And eventually one of those new theories replaces the old paradigm. So it's like this cycle. Okay, now, why is this important? And I was like, why is it important? This makes sense. This is totally fine. Like, why is this revolutionary? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at it in the context of how things were thought of at that time, people, this is my layman definition, people just thought that there was like a lateral journey that science made over time where people were dumb, and then they learned things, and they got more and more and more intelligent. That's not true. It's not true, and the I like the analogy that one of these articles I read gave, which will sort of try to explain that. So, Kuhn taught a course. Okay, when he was at Berkeley, he had he was sort of mandated to teach a course in um, to students who weren't who weren't. Kuhn was sort of mandated at the Berkeley University to teach a course to students who weren't science students. So it was like sort of like holistic learning. And so teaching this course forced Kuhn to study all scientific texts in detail for the first time. And he read basically Aristotle's work. And this turned out to be life changing for him and sort of changing the world also. Um, So he in his words, the question I hope to answer was how much mechanics Aristotle had known, how much he had left for people such as Galileo and Newton to discover. And so what he found in his words bothersome was that Aristotle appeared not only ignorant of mechanics, but was also dreadfully bad at physical sciences as well, like, for instance, motion in particular, uh, Kuhn says his writings seem to me full of egregious errors, both of logic and of observation. So if you imagine this, Kuhn is reading this book by, by this guy called Aristotle, who everybody, you know, is says is a genius, but then when he actually reads his work, he's like, wow, this guy knows nothing about motion. Um, you know, something which is like the basics of physics. Uh so by the standards of present-day physics, Aristotle looks a bit like an idiot, and yet we know he wasn't. <laughs> so Kuhn. Kuhn's blinding insight came from the sudden realization that if one is to understand Aristotelian science, one must know about the intellectual tradition within which Aristotle worked, or in other words, the paradigm. So Mm. everything, context, 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 you know. So in Mm. Aristotle's time, he was super intelligent, You know, but now if you look back at his work without the context, you'd be like, who's this raving maniac? Um, Yeah. (laughs) So why is this so important and so weird at the same time? Well, Kuhn's book... It spawned a whole industry of commentary, interpretation and debate uh, at the time that it was published. This was so unheard of to scientists and people in general of the time that they thought it was sort of insane. They either thought it was sort of insane or they had an Nirvana moment about it. (laughs) So his emphasis on the importance of communities of scientists clustered around a shared paradigm triggered the growth of a new uh, that triggered the growth of a new academic discipline. Uh, the sociology of science. So people studying science in the context of culture, which is so weird. You're, like you'd think immediately that, oh yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. You 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 know.
0: Yeah, like for me, this seems like the most obvious thing. You know, like I mean, if I if I am thinking about the works of any, uh, you know, anyone in the past, you're obviously taking into context the fact that they that they were working with the amount of information available at that time, and the reason why we have more information now is because we built on that information. exactly uh, but the fact that this is this is something that led to like a revolution in
1: science yeah um, is a bit I mean, uh, bizarre to me it's yeah exactly and this is only in the 60s and the 70s right so it doesn't feel like it's that long ago it was 50 years exactly yeah <laughs> but, yeah
0: yeah but at the same time I, we're doing the same thing right now right like it does uh yeah for us, like the fact that this happened back then, that this happened
1: ever, just feels like oh, but like it's not a exactly, like, and that's the this? nature of the cycle. That's why it's uh, cyclical. Yeah. Right, oh wow, that's this is cool, why I'm friends with you. <laughs> you get my <laughs> ramblings. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now, I, I hope, it was hard, but I uh, eventually. I hope everybody listening has also sort of, you know, got the gist of what I was saying or the gist of what I understood from what I read. But if you're, if you've got. Free time. Go read the book and then tell me what you thought, <laughs> because I yeah. need some help, bro. If you just know more stuff about this. Tell us anyway. Yeah. So that's the story of Thomas Kuhn and how he very quietly, uh, but very loudly, changed the way we look at <laughs> science. <laughs> wow.
0: Oh, that is that is kind of bizarre. I think I'm. Gonna, it's going to take me a little bit of time to like wrap my head around it still before I'm actually able to.
1: Girl, same.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, so keeping with revolutions in science, I'm going to take us to a different kind of revolution, which is basically uh, the revolution of planets. Oh, good. Okay, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like a little journey. But what I... So, you know, uh, I, I came across this article that talks about how Pluto apparently has this... has a super strange orbit. And the way it seems to be going, people aren't really sure how long it's going to be hanging out in the solar system because it feels like Pluto is... Doing what it wants to do, when it wants to do it. Uh, (laughs) Quite a little rebel. Uh, But, so, there was a time when we, you know, when we were in school, when we were taught the solar system has nine planets and we had a nice little nursery time to go with it and everything. And then one fine day, uh, Pluto got demoted and then they were eight. Goodbye. So, uh, (laughs) here, So, I think Pluto just is, either it's been having a tantrum since then or, I don't know. But, um, so, now... The eight planets have their own orbits and planes, right? And they all seem to follow it and they do a good job of it. Um, Pluto, most likely now because of how f- distant it is from the Sun, mm-hmm. seems to be, uh, again, with all of my in-depth research into <laughs> this, uh, doing whatever the F it wants to. So <laughs> that was my, my gist of what I've learned. Okay, good. Uh, you i to I'll explain,
1: Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> 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 <Yeah>, done. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <Packed> over. <laughs> The, the the revolution of every planet, the orbit, has a tilt that is called an inclination. Yeah. Most inclinations, uh, most planets will have an inclination of about a few degrees at best. Yeah, Pluto, however, uh, has an inclination of 17 degrees. So it's just like sticking out like Aww, a sore thumb. Inclination literally. shaming Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> there's also, so there's another phenomena called eccentricity, which is basically the ellipsisness of a planet's orbit. You know, uh, like how how stretchy is the orbit? Oh, okay, the yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that is you know scientific explanation. Very yeah, I mean, that's uh, why I
1: understood yeah. it. <laughs> I'm a woman of science.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so now, an eccentricity of zero would indicate a regular circle. Good job. Mm-hmm. Now, however, if you get to an eccentric, eccentricity of one, that means that your orbit has stretched to the point where you are on an escape trajectory uh, from the solar system itself. Wow. Which means that you're just going to go off on your own. Now, the Earth, for example, is a uh, a 0.016. Mercury, which has got the highest eccentricity, is at 0.2. Pluto, however, (laughs) is at Uh 0.25, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if I'm saying 1 is the point at which you're dicey, uh, this is about a quarter of the way. Wow. So, yeah. It's a fair bit. Even I was like, oh, initially I was like, oh, 0.25 doesn't sound like a lot. And I was like, oh, yeah. (laughs) One fourth of the way. Uh, But apparently the eccentricity of its orbit is so exaggerated that it spends 20 of its 248-year orbit within the orbit of Neptune, which is basically, because Neptune is is so much bigger than Pluto, it's able to like sort of calm down its exaggerated orbit to some degree, Mm -hmm. uh, which is possibly the only reason why Pluto is staying where it is for the time being. Uh, And the two planets are in what, what is called a resonance, where the period of one orbit is sort of, uh, it's it's like a multiple of the period of another orbit. So in the case of Pluto and Neptune, for example, for every three orbits Pluto is taking, Neptune will do two. Oh, okay. And this is what kind of regularize, regularizes Pluto's orbit for right now. But again, because of, you know, because while the the revolutions are on, there are periods where things are not very stable, especially when... Uh, When the planet is sort of moving away from the sun, you know, so there are times and because at that time what the gravitational influence of the sun isn't as much of an influence. And so at those points of time, Pluto is is sort of on very shaky ground in some way, I guess. Things seem fine right now. But scientifically speaking, astronomers really aren't sure how long Pluto is going to remain in its present orbit. Um, but there is a very strong chance that one day, some generation, if we are alive till that generation, will actually might just get to see Pluto sort of strike off on its own and see the rest of the big bad universe by itself. Wow. So, yeah, that's the that's the journey, uh, that's the adventures of Pluto waiting to be written. Oh,
1: little Pluto trying to break free, yeah. but Neptune's like, no, bitch.
0: <laughs> Neptune's like, no, <laughs> come back here, come on, come back here.
1: Oh, I love that. I love that. I mean, yeah, I think, you know what, I've read something like this in the fact that I'm going to cover also. And it's so interesting to see that, because we tend to look at things in isolation, like Earth goes around Sun, but then it's not, everything is dependent on everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I just took off on a philosophical tangent over there.
0: (laughs) Pluto is trying to break that rule. Yeah,
1: Pluto's like the rebel. So... (laughs) It was like, I'll teach you to do, to do off-planet. <laughs> so let's stay in the same region of space. Um, I wanted to talk about the Kepler Space Telescope, with the tenuous link of it being revolutionary, hence it fits into this word and this episode, all right? Don't question it. <laughs> so... In early 2009, a rocket was launched carrying an instrument that would fundamentally change our views of our position in the universe. So this instrument is the Kepler Space Telescope. It's only a small spacecraft that opened a huge window to many thousands of exoplanets strewn throughout the Milky Way. So sadly, on the 14th of March in 2018, NASA announced that the Kepler spacecraft was Uh, low on fuel and that it would only be functional for a couple of more months so sad news is this okay this is how I am are you like this where like the end of something like I don't know when your neighbor dies neighbor you barely spoke to but you know you sort of said hello to them dies and then has to move out and you see all their luggage and all their stuff outside the house one day and you're just thinking like oh that's the end of an era for them and you feel bad for it for it is this you or is this is this me only, uh,
0: like, do I feel bad when people die?
1: <laughs> yes, I think I do. I'm not a psychopath. <laughs> okay, good. Then you know this. Yeah. This made me feel that way. Kepler, Kepler, <laughs> little kept caps, as okay, I like I'm, to call them. I'm
0: not feeling it for this, but uh, okay, good for you. <laughs>
1: Um, So Little Kep Kep's is going bye-bye or has gone bye-bye. Its fuel tank hit critically low levels. And then a couple of months later, they um, had got their last data transfer from this uh, telescope. Um, Mm. So Kepler was launched 17 years after the first planet was discovered outside of our solar system. So that's insane to me. Barely 20 years after we were like, oh, look, there's a planet that's not in our solar system. We're like, oh, we're going to send a big space camera to take a picture of it. <laughs> that, uh, it's insane to me. Um, yeah, that is kind of cool, actually. Yeah, and in that 17 years, mm-hmm. 300 more uh, exoplanets had been discovered. Um and all this is all obviously in aid of finding life out there. Like you know, we just want to make friends. That's humans are yeah, a tribe. Yeah, that's all we want. To do. We're quite sick of each what other. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. We're quite sick of each other, so we want to make <laughs> friends elsewhere. So. You know, um, there's this guy called William Borucki and Guy, I'm using Guy very casually, but he's the principal investigator of the Kepler mission, <laughs> who's now retired from NASA. <laughs> so, little Billy was, you know, he said that there are lots of... You're like extremely familiar with all these people. I know, people I just feel and the kinship yeah, with and the, the story. <laughs> And so, Buruki said it's probably the one mission that's changed the history of humankind more than any other. And he might be slightly biased because he was the principal investigator <laughs> of the mission. But let's take his word for it. And also, let's look at some notable findings. Okay. So, the first thing that I wanted to touch on is that it helped us discover that planets are everywhere equally. So in its time, the telescope precisely measured the brightness of more than 150,000 stars simultaneously to a precision of about 50 parts per, per million, which in science speak, I'm assuming is like, bro, this this camera is 20
0: megapixels, bro. Oh, okay, okay, I could, like sharp, okay. <laughs>
1: um, so I think that's the equivalent. And... While it was taking these photographs, any temporary and repetitive dips it saw in a star's light could indicate that a planet had crossed between the telescope and that star. So these signatures are Kepler's way of finding exoplanets. So... Essentially, just the equivalent of you're taking a picture of the Empire State Building and a person walks past and you're like, thanks, thanks for walking past my photograph. But now you know that person (laughs) exists. So sort of like that.
0: Except Kepler is like really saying, thanks (laughs) "Thanks for walking past my photograph.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he's kind, he's sweet, he's kind, he's a good little boy. Um, So through its unblinking gaze, Kepler discovered more than 4,500 planetary signatures, of which more than 2300 have been confirmed as actual exoplanets. So that's pretty amazing that we didn't have, you know, we sort of suspected but didn't have proof. But Kepler was like, here's the proof, baby thousand words forget that here's a picture in the pudding <laughs> yeah um another thing mm. that it sort of helped with which we've teased already in our intro is that um yeah. planets exist in unlikely places now what do i mean by that or what does you know my research mean by that so our solar system's planets orbit around one star we know this but kepler found yeah. that exoplanets can orbit two three or even four stars with relative ease um and the example of this was Kepler-16b, creatively named, uh, which was a particularly exciting discovery for Star Wars fans as its solar system architecture uh-huh. mimics Tatooine, which is the homeworld of Luke Skywalker. Oh, that's kind of cool. Very cool. Yeah, I've been excited
0: to hear what this was about, actually, ever since we did t
1: <laughs> So Kepler-16b's path <laughs> takes it around both stars in that system in a circumbinary orbit. Circumbinary just means it's, it's, it goes around two stars, more than one star. The first exoplanet confirmed to orbit two sun-like stars. So the similarity ends there, unfortunately, because unlike the fictional planet in Star Wars, Kepler-16b is frigid, inhospitable, and approximately the size of Saturn. <laughs> so. Wow. So Kepler 16b is one of only about 20 known circumbinary planets. Considering that we, you know, we've studied like 150,000 purely from the Kepler telescope. That's amazing. Kepler revealed that planets that orbit a single star in a binary, triple or quadruple star system are much more common. So, yeah, okay. we're average. Earth is average. <laughs> the next thing that, uh, you know, I wanted to touch on was planets and stars can be oddballs. I love this. Just, just a regular weirdo. Planets and stars can be those. So our solar system has a pretty neat configuration. All the planets orbit in a mostly flat plane, move in the same direction that the sun rotates in, um, in orbits that are only slightly skewed from circular which Ragini was talking about, the eccentricity she was talking about earlier. Yes,
0: um, yes. We know all about all of yeah. this. We're, we're like, you, like,
1: yeah, we're experts now. Scientific included. You want us to guest on your science podcast? We'll do it for a fee. Um, <laughs> yeah. So in the Kepler-56 system, a Jupiter-sized exoplanet, this is amazing to me. This is like the scale of it fascinates me. So this Jupiter-sized exoplanet somehow maimed the orbits of two other planets so they're misaligned by 45 degrees from their star's rotation. You know, because you think of, yeah, you just think of these things in isolation, but you don't think of how everything affects everything else. And this big ass Jupiter is just like, i am just, I don't care. I exist. And hence, I'm on my own. You're changed forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another exoplanet, Kepler 63b, orbits its star from pole to pole rather than parallel to the quarter. That's weirder. That's weirder still. Okay. So with this, in basically what this indi- indicates is that it may have interacted with another unseen planet sometime in its past. Uh, just like, you know, the people that come into your life change the course of your I'm going to stop. <laughs> so,
0: Okay, wow. Yeah, I was really buying
1: that. I was like, oh, yeah,
0: that makes
1: sense. <laughs> oh, bless you, Agni. This is why I love you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And then the last thing that I'm going to talk about is in the same vein, although some of Kepler's exoplanets found stable orbits after chaotic interactions, others were not so lucky. Uh, Kepler 1520b, for example, at first appears like a supersized comet with its dense core surrounded by a coma and trailed by an extended trail like, like a comet. Um, that's because the planet orbits so close to its star that scientists assume that the star must be stripping away the planet's rocky surface and any atmosphere it might have had. That's scary. It's so close yeah. to the other that the gravitational pull is just like stripping the the, sheer, the earth from um, the planet. Just it's taking everything off its rocky surface, including its atmosphere. It's like a personal trimmer. Yeah, know? like a... Like a mad hatter, like um, yeah. <laughs> like a butcher.
0: <laughs> okay, we're just, we're just trying very hard now.
1: Um, So had it not been for the extended trail of debris the planet leaves in its wake, Kepler would not have been able to detect this smaller than Mercury disintegrating world. So, wow. yeah, so I'm going to stop there because if you want to read more about the Kepler uh, telescope, we'll put some extra facts into the blog post. But this is what we wanted to it's cover super. and we thought it was super fascinating.
0: It was actually it was quite fun. Hmm.
1: Um, also,
0: I think it, it followed up well with the Pluto fact because I knew a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so I felt like yeah, it's like preliminary <laughs> research. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, oh, I know that. Um, okay, we're gonna end this episode with an album recommendation. Uh, why? Because I came across it while I was researching, <laughs> and I felt like absolutely I had to share it with everybody. Let me know what you guys think. The album is called Weird Revolution. So, hmm. therefore, why you know, clear stays why on we,
1: theme. Why on it. theme. <laughs>
0: Yeah, on theme. Uh, by the Butthole Surfers. Yep. So, a little off theme there. <laughs> but, but yeah. Uh, I'm not going to say anything about my thoughts about this. I just feel like if you guys want to take a listen and, and let us know what you thought. And with that, we have reached the end of this episode. We really hope, like always, that you've enjoyed the episode. we had a great time recording this one. If you have, if you've enjoyed it. We would really appreciate it if you could go on to if you're listening to the episode on Spotify or Apple, just rate the podcast, uh, and if you really like the episode, drop us a review as well. It really, really helps as uh, it really, really helps us as independent podcasters. Also, as a side note, something that we mention every episode, but I have to say it again, we have because it's amazing. Yeah, it really is. Actually, I'm super excited <laughs> about it all the time. But our parent company, Art has a newsletter called Probably Relevant that is. The meeting point of every cool thing that we come across in the course of our research our BRF, in the course of living our lives, is just super great. And we just scour every place around, find all the most interesting stuff and put it together in this amazing newsletter. It's completely free. It's completely non-spam, I promise. You can sign up via our website at www.artnautas.in or you can hit the link in our bio on Instagram. We are at Barely Research Facts on Instagram. Uh, also, you can drop us a follow there if you haven't already. There's some fun behind-the-scenes stuff, a lot of facts that are as barely researched as a podcast, but don't really make it to the podcast. So go on over. We'll hopefully see you in your inbox soon. As always, the episode was edited by Mohit Chandelier. The music for our podcast is by Charita Aurora. We will see you with a brand new word in a couple of weeks. Until then, you guys take care and uh, let us know if you enjoyed our album, Reco. And we might do a few more. Yay, the butthole surfers! <laughs> Yay, butthole surfers! <laughs> okay, Bye.